Hello, and welcome to Perspectives, the APT's podcast which explores contemporary issues related to torture prevention and dignity in detention. I am Almudena Garcia, APT's Digital Communication Associate, and this episode is the first in a series looking at how oversight bodies around the world are promoting safety and fairness for women in contact with the criminal justice system. It's part of the APT's global campaign on women in prison. Luz Awanimo, our detention senior advisor, is leading this campaign. Our goal with the campaign is to support national oversight bodies in their effort to promote implementations of the UN Bangkok rules for the treatment of women prisoners and non-custodial measures for women offenders. An important provision in the Bangkok rules related body searches and strip searches. In prison, there are legitimate safety and security reasons why it may be necessary to conduct personal searches of detainees. But there have to be clear protocols, which are respected in practice because body searches and strip searches are inherently humiliating and degrading, especially for women. And we know that some women, especially indigenous women and women who have experienced sexual assault and other trauma, can face additional vulnerability. This is why oversight bodies are so important, to conduct independent monitoring and uphold safety and protection for women detainees. Our guest today is Rebecca Minty. Rebecca is Deputy Inspector with the Office of the ACT Inspector of Correctional Services in Australia. Her office recently completed an inquiry into the case of an Aboriginal woman detainee who was forcibly strip-searched. The report found that the woman's human rights were breached and made a series of recommendations for change. We'll talk about the case in details later in the podcast, but to start with, I asked Rebecca why this work is so important to her. I um, trained as a lawyer and I always had an interest in, in human rights law. And I, not long after graduating, I heard about this treaty about detention monitoring, which is the OPCAT, the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And it just struck a chord for me because it seemed like such a common sense approach to upholding human rights. It made a lot of sense and captured my interest. And then so a number of years down the track, I had an opportunity to work for the APT, in fact, which really has was a very formative moment for me because I was working on detention monitoring for the Asia-Pacific region, which is obviously such a vast region and there's so much diversity in approaches. But through all my observations and through my advocacy work and the people that I met, I really was convinced so much about the value of preventive detention monitoring. I could see the impact that it had about being constructive, about being collaborating by bringing people into the tent to achieve change. So after working with APT, I then moved back to Australia some years later and I guess I was in some ways the right place at the right time because they set up this detention monitoring body in this little jurisdiction that only has one prison and one youth detention centre. But for me, it was um, it was perfect because I developed an understanding of the, the theory and the methodology of detention monitoring, but here was an opportunity to try and put it into practice. And it's a huge learning curve because there's, um, there's so much complexity in a detention environment and there's so many 
areas of expertise. So there's always something to learn. And I really love my job and I really see the benefit of it. And it really keeps me motivated. So can you tell us a bit about your role and the monitoring work your office undertakes? My role is the deputy inspector. And essentially, we're a very small office. We have less than three full-time staff. And so I pretty much do everything. We all do a bit of everything. And we were actually set up um, three years ago to provide preventive detention monitoring. There was really only two other bodies in Australia that had similar functions at the time. And so in the ACT, we were quite progressive. The the jurisdiction was quite progressive because they saw OPCAT treaty that Australia was considering ratifying and they saw this coming and they thought, okay, well, let's set up a body that has those functions to perform that national preventive mechanism type function. So we conduct three types of reviews. We've got quite a strict mandate from our legislation. We have to do whole of centre reviews. So more or less built on the healthy prison model that was introduced in the UK a number of years ago. So it's looking at every aspect of treatment and care from the staff to the detainees to the visitors. So we have to do that every two to three years. And we also have to do thematic reviews. And But then we have an additional function, which is quite interesting. It's a, it's a review of a critical incident. So it's something very serious that has happened in a detention setting. And the legislation sets out what a critical incident is. We then go in and conduct a review and we report publicly on that. We are backward looking and we see that what has happened, what has been the root cause of it, how did the correctional authorities respond, was it appropriate? But the way we report is really prevention focused. So we make recommendations to try and prevent a recurrence of that sort of that sort of event. And what is the situation of women detainees within your jurisdiction? Do the Bangkok rules inform your monitoring and reporting work at all? Yes, we do look to the Bangkok rules as well as other rules such as the Mandela rules. But we've developed our own standards that attempt to really put a lot more flesh on the bones of, of these broad principles or broad rights. But obviously the Bangkok rules are really important because the rights of women in detention Uh, a specific issue, but they're also a cross-cutting issue. So when we're looking at healthcare, obviously, we need to look about gender-sensitive and gender-responsive healthcare and relevant preventive health for women, like screening. And these are things that um, the Bangkok rules really bring to the fore. And so having an instrument like the Bangkok rules has been very influential. Women offenders, I think that many studies and the data has shown that, that generally they're not they're not committing incredibly violent crimes. They're often committing more low-level economic crimes, maybe fraud, some minor drug offences. So the, I guess the level of criminality tends to be a bit, a bit lower. They also have a much higher, well, they have a very high rate of um, disadvantage, whether it's economic disadvantage, social disadvantage. There's significant rates of trauma, including violence and sexual violence. So the women that end up in prison have often had a very difficult, difficult set of experiences that have led to them being incarcerated. And 
we also see in prisons in Australia a grossly disproportionate representation of Aboriginal women, also Aboriginal men in prison. And I think this is intergenerational trauma, um, generation after generation, that Aboriginal people have experienced. If you look at Canberra, for example, under 3% of Canberra's population are Indigenous. But when we did our healthy prison review, there was around 18% of the women in the jail were Indigenous women, and it was even higher for men. So they are they are overrepresented in prison. And yes, there's compound disadvantage that makes it a, a difficult cycle for them to break out of. Earlier this year, um, your office were asked to review a critical incident that involved a forced strip search of an Aboriginal woman. Um, she was a prisoner at the Alexander McConaughey Centre. It's a case that generated a lot of concern, not only among health professionals, but also among women's groups. Could you maybe explain us what happened and what did your review found? The background to this incident was that there was an Aboriginal woman in custody at the jail, the I'll call it the AMC, and she had some, some very serious health conditions, but she'd also recently been informed that her grandmother had passed. So that was a very difficult, difficult experience for her. At the time, she had just been told by the jail that she wouldn't be able to attend her grandmother's funeral. Now, as a bit of an aside for Aboriginal people, and we had a Royal Commission 30 years ago that looked into Aboriginal deaths in custody, and one of the findings was reinforcing how important it is for Aboriginal people to be able to attend funerals to pay their respects to their to their family, to their cultures. But for a range of reasons, which I won't go into now, but she, she was not able to attend the funeral, but she was very traumatised and very anxious around, around this. So she was really struggling with this news and it was determined that she should go to the crisis support unit of the jail to be under observations for her own safety. Now, when she was transferred there, a senior officer decided that that she needed to be strip searched. The reason for this was that another officer earlier in the day had thought that he'd seen her put something, conceal something in her clothes, and he had a concern that it could have been a weapon or an implement that she may use to harm herself. So the senior officer, with this in mind, believed it was the best thing to do, that she needed to be strip searched for her own safety. And certainly there was grounds under the Corrections Management Act to conduct a strip search in in this situation. She refused to be searched, so she didn't consent. And so what happened next was particularly traumatic for her and, and also for many of the staff involved. Four female officers were went and put on tactical personal protective equipment or PPE it's essentially riot gear, so a helmet and body body armour. And so four of them then went into a cell and with the intent to basically to strip, strip her clothes off, to remove her clothes, to carry out that search. And she resisted strongly. She had um, significant health conditions, serious ones, in, including a heart condition. And so it was, a, it was quite a risky situation given her, her health background. She also... Um, she'd also had a, a history of recently being the victim of sexual um, sexual assault and she'd made that 
clear to a number of sources. So these factors combined to make to make it a particularly stressful situation for her. And she ultimately, after a number of minutes of prolonged struggle and resistance, she eventually agreed that she would go and willingly be strip searched, although there's questions about how willing, how, how you're actually consenting in, in that environment. But she she said, if a certain officer does it, I will go. And so they de-escalated, this officer came, and then they went to another room, a private room, where the search was carried out. All this situation came to light because she actually publicly wrote down her experience and wrote it in a public letter to the media and to the minister and one of the local Aboriginal health services supported her and advocated for her and that was how this this incident came to light and the reason it ended up as a critical incident was because the minister referred it to our office and our report eventually found that whilst there were legal grounds under the corrections legislation under the human rights legislation that is also applicable in our jurisdiction, this this use of force to conduct a strip search wasn't consistent with her human rights and that there were less restrictive means that the staff could have used. For example, just putting her under observation and observing her rather than forcibly removing removing her clothes. Ultimately nothing nothing was discovered, no implement or blade or weapon so yeah it was it was a difficult situation there's so many um, layers of vulnerability that can make it even more traumatic traumatic so I think as the Bangkok rules say whatever we can do around the world in every setting to reduce the prevalence of this we need to be doing it and there is so much more that can be done I mean where possible if there's technology um, if you have scanning scanning technology to stop people physically being violated, then they should absolutely be implemented. And our report, one of the key recommendations was to introduce scanning technology into the prison. And whilst we we still haven't received the government response to our report, we have heard there has been an official response that they will be procuring two body scanners in the forthcoming budget cycle. So I think that's a real, a, a really positive thing. And I think, I mean, I don't know if any good can come out of it for the woman who was at the centre of this, but her courage and her strength to come forward and to speak out has achieved this change. This is her This is her that has really brought about this and let's hope that fewer women will have to experience what she's experienced because there'll be a body scanner that they can walk through. It must take a lot of a lot of courage to to have a voice in such a public way as this this woman did, and I'd like to recognise and acknowledge that. There's probably just one other thing I just wanted to acknowledge the role when when we prepared our critical incident report, the role of an Indigenous advisor that joined our team. So we're a very small team. We've got 2.88 staff. We don't have an Indigenous member of our staff, and obviously, in conducting a review of this issue, there's some very sensitive cultural matters that we felt we were not, we felt that we would really be enhanced, our expertise would be enhanced by by bringing on someone with a better understanding of Aboriginal culture with lived experience. So there was a fantastic expert, Dr Liz McIntyre, who is an Aboriginal woman who's got 
expertise in criminology and working with Aboriginal women in detention. And I learned a lot from that experience because she really talked us through things through her eyes from, from her perspective. And I think that was incredibly valuable in highlighting for us some cultural aspects that we wouldn't have picked up on otherwise. And I think it's it's a good reminder that people with lived experience, people with life experience that is diverse can really add to a monitoring team. And what is the current stages of the reports? Um, how awful are you that your recommendation will be accepted? So we're still waiting for the government response to our recommendations, but we're very hopeful they'll um, accept them all. And when they do respond, we then take on some responsibility for following up. We can always check that they've been implemented and check on the progress. I suppose the the issue of the scanning technology is a really positive response. I think the other part of our report, the recommendations go to more to culture and having a human rights culture in prison. But the tricky thing, of course, as a detention monitor is culture and decision-making is harder to measure. It's harder to measure change. We can easily go back in a year and say, yes, they've got two scanners now, tick, tick. But to get a sense of the culture and the, the decision-making analysis when it comes to doing strip searches and body searches, that's much harder to to understand and to measure and to to bring about positive change. But I certainly think the goodwill's there um, and very hopeful that the report will prompt some positive change in that regard as well. Our guest today was Rebecca Minty. She's Deputy Inspector with the Office of the ACT Inspector of Correctional Services in Australia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Perspectives. We'll be back soon with another episode in this series. And if you have an idea for us to cover on Perspectives, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us via email on apt at apt.ch or find us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and we look forward to your company next time.